we're not, you know, uh, Venezuela or Argentina. You know, we we're the U.S. We have the greenback, so we have a lot more. We can arguably have a much much higher debt to GDP ratio before we actually would get in trouble. Anyway, where we really have、uh, start having some undesirable inflationary effects. Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. It's another edition of Retire Smarter coming your way. Walter Storholt alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design. If you're new to the show, you should know that Kevin is based out of Northeast Ohio and Southwest Florida a lot of the time, and、uh, also serves the Greater Pittsburgh area. That's all, at least in terms of office locations. But no matter where you are, you can always feel free to get in touch, ask questions, and obviously you're welcome to listen to the show and learn as much as you can. TrueWealthDesign.com, your place to go to get more information about Kevin and the True Wealth team. Kevin, great to be with you today. Looking forward to another episode. Yeah, me too, Walter. I, you know, I we've gotten a few listener questions. It's not like we've actually solicited them so much.、Um, maybe until today,、uh, and they're certainly welcome.、Um, a lot of times, I'll just create podcast topics based on questions that I'm getting. You know, the last one,、um, you know, about、uh, the recent stimulus plans and and some of the changes that are there. You know, questions were coming up. People were getting bigger tax refunds and. Um, they were happy, but they were wondering why, and so you know that's kind of how that one、um, arose. And, and somewhat relatedly, all the spending that's been going on in Washington and some of the deficits that are、uh, continue to accumulate,、um, we got a, a question, and, and this actually came through Tyler Emmerich,、uh, who we had、uh, you know, CFP, you know, team member of ours. Um, advisor, and、uh, I will just read the question verbatim. It says, "If Kevin is taking topic input for future podcasts, could he discuss inflation and its effects?" I've heard the current day compared to the year right after World War II ended,、uh, when there was lots of cash influx into the system, combined with a sudden release of pent up demand causing significant inflation. What should we expect? Is it similar, meaning today to then? What's different this time, and how can we best be positioned? So,、um, so、uh, that question came from Dan. Thank you very much for it.、Uh, it's a smart-sounding question. That's good. Yes, yeah. Kudos <laughs> to Dan.、Um, he's retired now, and he has time to read. And so he's reading up.、Uh, it seems on World War II and kind of you know some of the the spending. And I, I'm all for it. So yeah, kudos to Dan. We need a little round of applause for the very well,、uh, very good listener question. So let's start unpacking it. So inflation, just maybe just start with a simple example.、Um, you know, if you go back and、uh, I, I pulled one of these, but you go back to 1916 and you could buy a quart of milk for nine cents, and then you go, you know, 50 years later, 1966, and nine cents is buying you a small glass of milk, and you come to today, and, and maybe you're getting a few. Tablespoons of milk.、Uh, so, <laughs> so obviously, your your money today will likely buy less tomorrow.、Um, said another way, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow or further into the future. It, it just it just happens. It's a monetary phenomenon.、Uh, a lot of people will think back to maybe the first house that they bought or the first car that they bought or something like that. I used to use a postage stamp example、uh, of inflation, and then it just kept getting more and more convoluted. With you know these now they have these forever stamps. Right, thank right. goodness. Before they had the forever stamp, they had all these. You had to put like a one or two cent stamp to make up the total stampage for you know what your prior stamp was worth. And 
Uh, thank goodness for the forever stamp, I suppose. But, yeah. um, but it, it's, it's a, so what also, is also you're dating yourself when you start talking stamps these days, the younger generation's <laughs> yeah. like, what's a stamp? Right. <laughs> Venmo? <laughs> no stamp. <laughs> email? Not even email it's text message or maybe not even text, but, um, DM me, right? That's Direct right. message me. <laughs> I, I, I sent my cousin, my little cousin, an email a couple of weeks ago and she took like five weeks to respond to it. And she was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I only checked this about uh, a couple times a year. <laughs> like, I guess I need to download download Snapchat if I need to get in touch with you faster. And she's like, "That'd be so cool." And I was like, "Oh God, I'm I'm already the the old cousin who doesn't know you know social media Snapchat stuff." Oh my God, it changes quickly. Yes, it, does, it does. It does. Um, but so so while we can talk about examples, a, a definition, if you will, you know, kind of why does it exist? I'll go back to. Uh, Milton Freeman, who it's, um, most people probably are familiar with the name, but you know, a Chicago economist, um, you know, really one of the most renowned economists over time. Uh, but inflation is a here. I'll try to use my academic voice. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. Is that cool? Yes. Alert. <laughs> You were, ask, right. you were asking for it. I was time. asking for it. I missed it, Walter. Thank you. You made my day. Um, all right. I'll simplify it. Uh, too much money chasing too few goods and services. How's that? Um, that so is simpler. It, That's good. Much simpler. So it, it's just, you know, as Dan mentioned in his email, and you kind of think about in his question, uh, and you think about what's going on now, um, certainly there's parts of our um, population that have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. There's also been pockets that are doing quite well. Um, you know, the real estate market, you see more and more people buying second homes or larger homes and, uh, they're just working remote and they just keep plowing along and, and doing well. Um, and they're not able to spend their money on, on a lot of other areas like travel and leisure and, and even some entertainment and things like that. So all that has just been, you know, kind of, you know, maybe you have a lockdown or you just have restrictions or whatever it may be, but all that has been kind of forced um, to slow down. And so there's kind of a pent up demand building, I would say, for, for a lot of these things. Um, there's also been supply chain issues where, you know, people couldn't get, you know, whether it's semiconductors or chips or, you know, some parts for this or that. And so, you know, uh, furniture is one right now. We have uh, a couple clients that are you know, buying second homes and they're waiting four months, five months for furniture. Um, so you have a lot of pent up demand building, a lot of supply chain kind of issues and constraints, and uh, you have that happening. And so uh, to be specific and answer Dan's question, the general consensus when you look at forecasting, which you got to take that with a grain of salt, you know, the, what did a Yogi Berra say, Walter? Making predictions is hard, especially about the future. Yes, yes, one of the best. <laughs> yes, so, um, but I would say this is a fairly reasonable assumption here, but you have this um, pent-up demand that's building. Um, you had uh, really a, a kind of inflation you know, um, decline in, in 2020 because people weren't spending money, um, at least on certain things. Uh, and then now you're having this rebound. So it seems likely that we are going to have an inflation spike in the near term. Um, one of the recent economic reports that I read said, you know, hey, yeah, that's probably short term. We're probably feeling that now and we'll continue as we reopen. 
uh, everybody's vaccinated or at least reaching herd immunity and getting back to some sense of normalcy. But um, it's they really see as more of a, a, a temporary thing and not you know an ongoing trend to be overly concerned about, which, uh, which I'll get back into. Um, and if you think about historically, um, there's different ways to measure inflation, but um, a common measurement um, really peaked in the 1970s. So Walter, we've talked, it's been a while, but we've talked about kind of the 4% rule where, hey, if you're a retiree and, you know, what's the safe withdrawal rate from your portfolio? And basically that means, at least as the researcher defined it in, in original work, hey, how much can I pull out per year, increase it with inflation each year and have my money last 30 years? And uh, basically, that's where that 4% rule came from. Some 30-year periods, you could pull out you know, twice that, maybe 8 or even 10% per year. But if you had some really kind of uh, unlucky sequence of returns, maybe even high inflation, uh, then uh, you know, it was closer to that 4% uh, rule. And that 4% rule, actually the worst, uh, at least in the U.S., the worst historical time period to be a retiree was starting in 1966 and the 30 years thereafter. And what was happening back then was inflation was was pretty low, but it was starting to increase. Uh, it, as I just mentioned, it peaked in the mid-70s. Um, so inflation was quite high, and it just made it really tough uh, for a retiree um, to go ahead and have their money last. Um, we'll talk about some of the investment implications of that as well, but both stock and bond returns were pretty terrible um, for a large swath of the 70s. Uh, so that's that's really kind of where this question was coming from. You know, hey, what are some of the risks? Dan was retired. He is retired. Wants to stay stay retired. Uh, we want to help him stay retired to make smart decisions. But uh, I, really, I think that's where this question was coming from. So it's just helpful to kind of keep it in perspective. But you know, while we had that really high inflation in the '70s. Um, uh, interest rates really peaked in the early 80s. And then we've been on a decline in, in interest rates and inflation really since the early 80s. So for about the last 40 years. But candidly, I mean, we've probably reached a bottom here in the, in the recent past. I mean, rates really went to zero. So uh, I suppose they can go negative like they happen in, in Europe. But uh, we'll see. I don't think that's likely. So if we just kind of come back, um, what maybe what do we expect? So another question that Dan had, part of his question was, hey, what can we expect? So while I think we can expect some inflation um, in the near term, if you one way to really get a good measurement of inflation is just to look at market prices. You know, every day there's people buying and selling and you have price discovery and people are transacting. And these are not just kind of government, um, you know, federal reserve sort of, um, manipulated markets. These are institutions. These are individuals that are going ahead and doing buying and selling and um, baking, baking in their inflation expectations into that. And what I specifically mean by that, um, just something called a break-even rate. If you look at say, say ten-year inflation expectations here in the U.S., what you can do is take you just take the nominal Treasury bond. So um, I looked at it yesterday. Uh, current rate was 1.71%. Uh, so if you bought that bond yesterday and you bought it at 1.71%, you hold it for the entire 10 years and it matures, um, you get a 1.71% return over that time period. Um, there's also something called a Treasury Inflation Protected Security or TIPS bond for short. And this, uh, this has, as the name implies, some, tr uh, some inflation adjustments baked into it. And so um, if you think about it this way, you're going to get whatever the inflation rate is, 
you know, plus or minus whatever kind of the current yield is. So let me say this in, in plain English. Um, while the 10-year treasury bond was 1.71% yesterday, and we subtract the 10-year tips, that comes out with a break-even inflation rate. And actually, the real yield on the tips bond yesterday was minus 0.64%. So to do the math, 1.71 minus a negative 0.64 means that the market is pricing in inflation expectations of 2.35% over the next 10 years. So again, these are real people transacting. These are institutions. These are individuals. Um, it's not like this is just the Federal Reserve saying, hey, this is what you know, inflation is going to be. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, certainly has a lot of influence over the short-term rates, but as you move further out uh, to you know five, ten, certainly thirty-year money, thirty-year bonds, those are those are global market rates. You know, where it's not just the U.S., but you know, if our rates look more attractive relative to Europe or relative to Japan, which they do, then we see money flowing into the U.S. Um, because hey, we're a higher yield than those places. So that's important to remember. It's always best to look at market prices if you can to get information because you have that price discovery. So 2.35, Walter, I don't know that how, how that strikes you. Does that seem um, low, high? I mean, put it in context here for me, buddy. I guess I've just always heard like assuming inflation at 3% seems like a safe bet. So 2.35 still sounds reasonable to me, but certainly a lot higher than it feels like we've experienced lately. Yes, very good. So 3% is, if you go back about 100 years or so in the U.S., 3% is, uh, is really what the average has been. If you look at the more recent past, it's certainly been lower than that. A um, couple reasons for that. And it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's really a global phenomenon. But you think about what's happened, you know, say over the last you know, 30, 40 years, all the technology that we have today that has increased and made increases in productivity, um, just, you know, have lower input costs, you know, you don't have as much wage pressure um, for different goods and services. And so technology really has um, helped fight inflation to a certain degree. You've you really had a kind of a making things cheaper and more accessible to a large degree. You know, you think about over the last couple of decades, you had this globalization that's this candidly more recently kind of gone the other way with a lot of these tariffs and um, maybe some of the political outcomes and people becoming more country specific and um, rather than having a global thought it's more kind of like us versus them but really over particularly like the 2000s the 90s and the 2000s you know China became a big manufacturing center you had people moving out from the farmlands to their cities and really developing a middle class over there. Um, you have people in India you know, doing the same. A lot of jobs were outsourced to these different places and lowering the cost of production of these goods and services. So there's been some themes here that, you know, why it's been much, much lower than what it had been historically. And I think, candidly, we probably reached a maximum point of globalization, at least for a while. I mean, you can see with just some of the election outcomes, whether it's you know, in the U.S. or, you know, things that happen in the U.K., there's there's definitely more of a centrist, I don't want to say centrist, but um, just a non-global view. You know, it's, it's kind of the way that I would say. Uh, and um, trade uh, really reached a peak uh, a few years ago, um, from my knowledge, as my understanding is. And, and maybe that will be the forever peak. We'll see. But um, it seems like it's kind of going the other way. Technology, I think, is still going to continue to you know, keep uh, inflation low and you're still going to have these productivity gains. But 
I, I don't know if that rate of change is going to be less than what it has been in the past. But my point being is there's some really good reasons why inflation has been lower. Um, the globalization thing, maybe maybe not so much of a contributing factor anymore as the world has kind of turned a little bit. Um, technology, I think, will still help um, in that regard, but maybe not as much as it has before um, because the rate of change is just going to be a little bit less. And then lastly, I would say, you know, just the Federal Reserve and, you know, the global central banks, um, candidly, at least appear to have a better hold on uh, on being central bankers and, and managing the money supply. And so it's you haven't got these big sort of cyclical boom and bust uh, as you have in, you know, more distant decades. So those three things, um, again, not just in the U.S., but around the world have really helped keep inflation down. And um, though we're going to see a spike, likely to see a spike this year, probably not overly risky moving forward. So you don't feel like we're going to have to have the extreme worries of the, the 40s inflations, like was in Dan's question, or the 70s, where we had many years of, you know, big inflation spikes. It seems also like um, we manipulate everything these days, right, with the stimulus payments, and we've been manipulating, I don't know, it just seems like lots of things since 2008 to try and keep the economy together and keep things moving forward and as stable as possible. Uh, can, can inflation be manipulated in such ways as well? And, and perhaps we'll just continue to see this constant constant tinkering going forward? Uh, you know, anything's possible. I mean, there's different ways to um, measure inflation. You know, something that ended up in the tax code uh, under, you know, the Trump tax plan was the tax brackets now are increasing at, at not inflation, not CPI, but at chained CPI. And in short, without getting into the weeds of it, chained CPI is, is less than CPI. So it's kind of a nice um, stealthy way to have a tax increase over time because if our, you know, our lifestyle is really increasing at a rate um, higher than that chain CPI, we're going to have to pull more money out of our retirement accounts and what have you. And it's really going to have a slow and steady kind of creeping effect to increase taxes over time. Um, I also think that chain CPI is going to show up in Social Security reform at some point. So Social Security uh, is it, it, it's not so overt. So I think, you know, all politicians like it, like, hey, let's do this chain CPI. Nobody's going to understand this thing. It's going to fill some of the gap and people won't get mad at us and we'll get reelected. So that this just seems to check a lot of the politicians um, check boxes, if you will. So that's that's there. So that's a, one example of measuring, you know, inflation differently and maybe some things that could be done uh, in a stealth manner, if you will. But I I think more importantly, when you think about this, um, you, you look at this, say, debt to GDP is something that people are pretty common about. You hear it, you've spoken about a lot. If anybody's ever gotten a mortgage before, they'll look at your debt to income ratio. It's the same sort of thing. It's just kind of a, a measurement of that, your financial wherewithal, if you will. Obviously, as an individual or a family, you, know, you, can't, you can't print money. If you do print money, you kind of go to a federal prison for that. So um, the U.S. government can print money. Um, but if, and they are printing money, you know, they're creating money supply with all these stimulus spending. Um, U.S. debt to GDP is over 100%. Uh, it's about 106, 107 uh, now. Uh, but the max was reached after World War II, as Dan indicated, um, closer to about 120%. So we're not not there, but uh, just to put this in context, you know, if you look at um, another country, you know, we're the world's reserve currency. 
everybody loves uh, U.S. greenbacks, so you can use it anywhere. There's a high demand for it, not just domestically, but in other parts of the world. That is very valuable. Um, uh, Japan um, is not as large as the U.S., but certainly a developed nation. And their debt to GDP, Walter, you want to take a guess? Uh, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more than double. They're about 230% uh, of, you know, kind of their debt to GDP ratio. Oh, wow. And they don't have runaway inflation. Okay. Um, they actually have been fighting deflation really since probably the mid 80s or so. Hmm. Um you know, it's, I kind of won't get off on too much of a tangent here, but one of the other things I didn't mention about what's keeping inflation down is just that we have kind of an aging demographic. People are living longer. There's not as many babies being born and developed as well as more and more in emerging uh, countries as well. And older people tend to save more and spend less. And so that has a natural way of keeping interest rates low because those people in aggregate are going out and buying more of those 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds yielding 1.7%. Um, so Japan is actually an older economy uh, than the U.S. Their average age um, is older than us, but we're on that path, and Japan is arguably just a little bit further ahead of it than us. And that the GDP is more than twice ours, and they ha don't have runaway inflation. So it's it's one example but they it's a good example i think you know they're a developed uh, economy you know very much like the us in many regards certainly culturally it's it's different um but nonetheless i think is an example that we can look to uh and i think more the concern is at some point it does become an issue and, and it's somewhat theoretical you know we're not zimbabwe um, we're not, you know, uh, Venezuela or Argentina, you know, we we're the U S we have the greenback. Um, so we have a lot more, we can arguably have a much, much higher debt to GDP ratio before we actually would get in trouble anyway, where we really have, uh, start having some undesirable inflationary effects. Um, I don't know what that threshold is. Candidly, I don't think anybody does. It's somewhat theoretical, but there's definitely a prevalence right now in Washington and maybe in America that deficits don't matter, <laughs> or at least they don't matter when, if you're the controlling party and you want to spend it on what you want to spend it on. They only matter when the other people are in power and you don't want to spend it on that. Um, back to our my political angst, I guess. Um, but uh, I think we, it's all we, we have that impersonal life, don't we? Though I, I, there have been times where I've had to catch myself where um, I, I might go just buy something on a whim, and then my wife does the same thing, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! We need to uh, be watching our spending here. Is spending it on this really a, a wise decision? And then she gives me that look of like, and what did you just buy yesterday? And like, oh yeah, you got a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I, I think. Well, all, all smart husbands have learned that lesson. Um, so, <laughs> I'm glad you have too, Walter. Yes, um, definitely. So I, I think it is a problem. I mean, economically speaking, you know, there's a crowding out effect that could happen if you have, you know, more and more kind of the deficit spending. It'll crowd out some more productive uses uh, for for money, for investment, um, for for capital investment, what have you. And you know somebody's got to eventually pay for this. I I, I'm, I definitely agree with that. I do think deficits matter uh, in the long term, but this is more of a long term problem. Is my point. And again, uh, the extent of which it's a problem is somewhat theoretical. So some of the government spending that's going to be happening over the next several years through these different stimulus plans. Uh, could crowd out some private investment, could crowd out some good projects. And government can do some things pretty well, but there's a lot of things that government historically has not done well. And um, 
just you think about uh, kind of you know communist societies and picking winners or losers and things like that is is not really worked out that well um, when you look at it. So said another way, um, capitalism is the worst economic system except for all the others. Uh, and nobody has a pure capitalist economy, but um, but I think the more that we can stay towards that, um, it, it tends to work better uh, economically anyway. So um, I guess a couple of things. I'll just kind of plant seeds here. We'll pick up in a future episode, but. One of the reasons why this inflation, and it does matter, I mentioned kind of that 1966 30-year time period being the worst for that 4% rule. You know, you did have high inflation. Um, you did have some, you know, kind of choppy growth. You know, the economy really wasn't growing. You had inflation. They called it stagflation because inflation was increasing, but, you know, you really didn't have a growing economy and you kind of got stuck there for a while. So, you know, that's certainly not good. Um, but one thing that combats uh, inflation naturally for retirees is that our spending does tend to decline as we age. Certainly healthcare increases, but other categories decrease at a faster rate. We're going to go into this on the next episode. We've talked about this before, but it's been a while and um, I think it'll be good to revisit it for sure. But because your spending declines on average about 1% per year, uh, as you age, if you kind of average it out, you know, you're, you're naturally spending less. And so even if costs are increasing, you know, via inflation, um, well, because you're spending less, you're somewhat muting the effects of inflation. So that's good to know. And then uh, lastly, from an investing standpoint, again, you know, one of Dan's questions was, you know, what's different this time and how can we best be positioned? Um, of course, and you can probably predict what I'm going to say here, but diversification always remains key. You know, some of the things that we've done, we've kept our bond duration. I'm not trying to get too eggheady, but basically our bonds a little bit shorter. So as interest rates go up, it's kind of like a teeter-totter relationship. Interest rates go up and that pushes current bond prices down on the other side of the teeter-totter. Um, so, you know, you kind of want to have, you know, maybe favoring the shorter term um, bonds right now. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's certainly something that you could look at doing. And then lastly, it's not just if there's inflation uh, or not. It's kind of like what I mentioned uh, with the 70s and stagflation. If you think about this, um, you know, is inflation going up or down or and is growth increasing or decreasing? So certain assets will do better depending on what um, quadrant, if you will, if you just kind of map that out, you know, you had rising growth or falling growth or falling inflation or rising inflation. You know, if you think about the last several years, really we had, right at least before 2020, we had rising growth and we had falling inflation. Growth stocks did really well in that environment. Um, if you go back to any major recession, like we had, you know, kind of post, you know, 9-11 and technology bubble, um, that was a fairly bad recession. Uh, so when you have that, you have, you know, falling growth, and you have falling inflation. Um, you know, there's not a whole heck of a lot that does well in, in those environments. But you know, if you have uh, longer dated bonds, uh, government bonds, they do pretty well in, in that type of environment. Most other things, not so much. If you go on the other side where you have rising inflation um, and you have falling growth, you kind of had this in the uh, you know, 60s and 70s. It was really choppy with growth, but you definitely had that rising inflation. Um, then those are periods of time where commodities could look good, energy, gold, uh, real estate could look better. But there could be different assets, is my point, that you may want to favor in these different economic environments. And that's just one data point out of many that you need to look at. But diversification is key. 
Um, it's always key. What we're talking about here is you may just want to overweight certain assets based on their value. You know, are they cheap or expensive? and based on the economic scenario that we believe that we're in. So it, obviously it can get quite complicated. We talked about this um, in our four-part investing podcast series where we just kind of walk through our investing process, but more that scenario analysis that I just mentioned, like whether it's rising growth or falling inflation or what have you, um, is really kind of coming in at the end you're still making sure that you're going to be diversified within some specified targets. You may want to factor in, you know, hey, are things cheap or expensive relative to themselves or relative to other assets? And then you want to kind of overlay that scenario analysis and, and just try to put things in context as to where we're at economically. Again, pretty difficult, uh, really complicated. But Dan, I mean, number one is we want to make sure that we're diversified. Then we may want to kind of do some of these overlays, overweighting certain assets based on the, that criteria. It's a really great question, Dan. Thank you again for sending that one in to us. And uh, if anybody else has questions they want maybe featured on a future show, uh, we we don't often really solicit for them. But uh, sure, we can do that on today's episode. Go to truewealthdesign.com, and there are several different ways that you can contact us uh, through the website there and ask your question. Of course, you can always have private one-on-one conversations as well and get into more in-depth conversation about your specific situation with Kevin and the team at True Wealth Design. And if you want to get in touch, you can do that a few different ways. Ways. There's, again, truewealthdesign.com. Click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the team. Or you can call 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-TWD-PLAN. Kevin, thanks for answering Dan's question and taking us through so many uh, different layers of that question and giving us some perspective. I, I come away thinking, okay, the sky is not falling, even though it's still a problem and still something we should focus on and, and kind of think about fixing. Uh, we don't have to run around with like chickens with our heads cut off kind of reaction to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a good question. I mean, it's a risk that's out there. Um, and I guess one other thing I didn't mention, I mean, you may have some income that does have inflation adjustments like Social Security. I mean, everybody's probably going to have some. So you have some natural inflation uh, uh, fighting effects for your retiree spending. But um, really, really good question. Really appreciate the question. And uh, hopefully I did a good job answering it. Yeah, I think so. Thank you, Kevin. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode where unofficially this has been like a little series beginning back with kind of all the changes that have been going on with the stimulus checks and some affordable care tax credit that we talked about an episode ago leading into this question of inflation and spending. And on the next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about spending, but less from a macro level and talking more about individual retirees and how that kind of fits into all of this that we've talked about on the past few episodes. So the unofficial part three of our series here will continue on the next episode. Uh, Until then, Kevin, take care. Thanks for being with us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Walter. All right, we appreciate it. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.